All right. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Fourth of July to everybody here, to our pajama people at home this morning, to the afternoon tea people somewhere around the world in the afternoon, and to the wine and cheese people who might be who knows where. Uh, I actually don't have too many announcements today. We know that the book group and the Ordinary Women group are taking a hiatus for the summer, but there is one uh, new announcement, and that is that Amazing Place, that wonderful organization that provides support and programs for people suffering or having dementia and for their caregivers, uh, Amazing Place is collaborating with St. Paul's to offer a six-week course on caregiver giving, caregiver support. Uh, it will be virtual on Zoom, and it starts July 20th. That's a Tuesday, so in two weeks. Uh, I have the notice. I got two different notices, and one said starts at 11 to 1, and another said 11.30 to 1.30. So it's one of those times. I'll find out for sure next week. And if you're interested, you are supposed to register with the Amazing Place person, Sheila Cantrell, and there's an email address available on St. Paul's website. But I'll try and get some flyers for next week so you can uh, pick them up or if I'll find out more about where they are on the website. That's really all of the new announcements. Again, a reminder that we are on camera and try not to cross the middle aisle, but it's not a big deal if you do. And that's all. I guess we're almost ready to begin, are we, Bill? We're getting there, but I'm going to sign off. Everybody have a great fourth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bill sprinted from across the street. I left the service before it was over. Oh, wow. I should never have been scheduled to do that no, today. No, I think that's a little hard. To do the communion. Mm -hmm. We'll talk to the master scheduler. <laughs> so, as always, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Before we get into the content of uh, today's class, I want to raise into our awareness the reality of how blessed we are. Not everybody on, in this country is so blessed, and not everybody on the planet, certainly, that's for sure. But um, I was thinking uh, this week about um, hymn that is not in our Methodist hymnal, but I'll bet it's one that 80% of you know. Count your blessings, you know that? Name them one by one, count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, count, count your many blessings. See what I God has done. I'm not a singer. <laughs> Rob Landis, um, Roddy. where's Roddy? Yeah. Right, ah, oh, <laughs> right in front of me. <laughs> Rob Landis once said to me, you're cut out to be a singer. You just weren't sewn up right. So. <laughs> I am blessed to be still healthy and able to do this. I am blessed to have been able to do this class for as long as I have. We are blessed that St. Paul's has provided a place for this kind of gathering together for as long as it has. Um, 
and to the freedom to explore the topics that, that we do. And I, I am blessed by your, and grateful for your physical presence in this place. It makes so much difference. Yeah. To be able to, yeah, to be able to see people and hug people and get feedback while we're teaching. Yeah. And, like you can still laugh and clap. <laughs> yeah, I, but it's not the same. Without no. you, there would be no Ordinary Life class. I mean, we're grateful. I mean, really, really, really grateful that we were able to live stream this for 15 months. But that was not sustainable. And, and every week we knew uh, soon this will come to an end, or we hoped that it would soon come to an end. It's the physical gathering of those of you who show up, who make this class, and the things that we do possible. So... Um, yeah, I'm grateful that Ordinary Life is live stream and that it was seen last week by people not only spread out over the state of Texas, but in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. According to the analytics on Squarespace, there were people in 22 different states who watched Ordinary Life last week. You make that possible. And I'm grateful to you for doing that. And I'm especially grateful for this gathering when I am confronted by things that are going on in the country and in the world, and I need a platform from which to rant. <laughs> by the way, that hymn that I mentioned was written by a man named John Oakman. He desperately wanted to be a singer because his father had a beautiful baritone voice. And John Oatman wasn't cut out to be a singer. But he did end up writing over 5,000 hymns, not a one of which is in our hymnal, which surprises me. What? None of them are, you saying? Not a one in the Methodist hymnal. What do you think about that? And I always, when I, when I have a hymn that I like, and, and Terry Thompson, who's sitting on the front row over here, has memorized the hymnal, more or less, I think. Um, I always like to see if there's a backstory to a hymn. I couldn't mm -hmm. find a backstory for this, uh, like something happened in his family or <clears throat> something like that. But the, the lyrics of this hymn that was, were written in 1856 begins, When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings and every doubt will fly and you will be singing as the days go by. Now that may sound like an exaggeration, but if you keep a gratitude log and every day in your journal you write down three things that happened the day before that you were grateful for, when you hit one of those inevitable low spots, which we all do, all you have to do is get that gratitude log out and read it. And it will transform your mood almost instantly. It's a wonderful spiritual practice. We live in a world where there is a greater and greater need mm. for what the teachings of ordinary life want to be about. And I'm going to give you an example of the discouraging tempest that is out there. Just one example. Mm. Since we last met, word has come to me that in September of this year, for a mere 50 bucks, 49.95, you can purchase the new God Bless America Bible. Mm. 
going to let that sink in. Now, folks, this is not just any Bible. No, sir, Bob. Within its pages, you will find a handwritten chorus to God Bless America by Lee Greenwood, the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and the Pledge of Allegiance. And, of course, the words of Jesus are in red. <laughs> it's always puzzled me. Why didn't they put the deeds of Jesus in red? Yeah. They're pretty important, I think. God writes with a red pen, though. God dictated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Except in, in the Hebrew scriptures where God took a chisel and wrote in stone. <laughs> so the honest and true account of history reveals that the Jesus movement has been almost from the very beginning a victim of religion. And it seems to be a battle that has to be fought again and again and again. Karl Rahner, and this class is not about him, Karl Rahner was a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest who's now considered one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. He and his works were condemned by post Pope Pius XII. That's always a good sign. I was going to say, anytime somebody gets condemned. You know, when, like... when I told somebody that we were having Michael Morewood here and that he was a defrocked priest, they said, well, that speaks well of him. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So he, he became one of the driving forces behind a reform movement in the Roman Catholic Church known as Vatican II. And he has a lot of stuff that's wor worth quoting. You can go on Google and look him, look him up and see. But the one that fits the direction that ordinary life is taking and wants to continue to take is this. Karl Rahner said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or he, she will not exist at all. One of the things that Holly and I are preparing to do is to take a really deep dive into the Gospel of John. It's going to be a few weeks before we get there because um, I want to lay some groundwork for it. Uh, John is the most mystical, metaphorical, parabolic understanding of the Jesus story that's in the Jesus collection. You can't count the Gospel of Thomas because it isn't a narrative. John is a, is a narrative. And as the writer of the Gospel of John sees it, the religion of his day had reduced God to the status of one who is primarily the creator of rules and not one who calls us into radical humanity. So the early Jesus movement increasingly came to the conviction that God cannot be contained in the forms that are created by humans. Now, we do create, but we just have to know all the time that our creation doesn't contain. So what you see in the God Bless America Bible is a belief on the part of people who cannot imagine that they can exist without clinging to the past. And, of course, the past they cling to is a past that is always sanitized and a past that is always prettied up. Mm. And what Jesus offered and what his teachings offer is a new vision. It's not a debate about religious superiority. 
that Jesus' teachings open us or seek to open us to frightening new dimensions of what it means to be human. So in our time, particularly, we are being called into a new vision of what it means to be free and loving people in the here and now, right here, right now. So the theme that we are take, undertaking, the way of paradox and contradiction, wisdom teachings for ordinary life, that's the path that we're trying to follow. So I, I want to conclude this part of my rant today. <laughs> <laughs> with um, a prayer poem that I say every day. And if I am at my age can memorize this, you can memorize it too. Okay? It is a prayer that is uh, attributed to St. Francis, but St. Francis um, didn't write it. <clears throat> you know it. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, healing. Pardon, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sorrow, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to be consoling, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to be loving. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in self-forgetting that one is found, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Mm. Paradox, 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 paradox on every phrase. I love that. It, one of the things I've appreciated as we, uh, this book that you've mentioned by John Shelby Spong, the fourth gospel, as I've started reading it, um, he says he put John on a shelf for 36 years, meaning people kept giving him books about the gospel of John and he just kept putting it away. He didn't want to touch it. So in his later years, how old is he now? At least your age. He's older than me. <laughs> He's older than mm -hmm. you. <laughs> John, he, John, uh, I would just say that uh, Shelby Spong has spoken in this place yeah. like three times. Yeah. He's a big guy, a big tall guy, a very imposing guy. And I got to know him in a more personal way through the Jesus Seminar. And I would say about eight years ago, he had a stroke that that affected him. He's still writing and working, but not like he was. Mm. He's a great guy. I just really appreciated that a man of the cloth, so to speak, w was saying, I, I don't know what to do with John. Because what happened is that it became the gospel of fundamentalism um, instead of the gospel of, of mysticism. And I'm excited to sort of, I have put away John for mm. that. So I, I'm excited to kind of open it and go, oh, we can look at this in a new way. Anyhow, that's one of my notes. <laughs> but we're weaving these threads on this topic of paradox and contradiction from several sources, including Spong. And following these threads, namely because life, of course, is a paradox and a contradiction. I mean, I bet you can think of at least three contradictions just since you woke up this morning, right? <laughs> we really thought about it. So I know I can certainly use some help wading through it all, and namely because my kids look to me and my husband to help them make sense of it. You know, that this question comes up a lot. Mommy, why do we have to follow laws? Well, because laws are important to help keep certain order in societies, my love. But didn't Rosa Parks break the law? Yep. So shouldn't she have followed the law? Nope. <laughs> it's courageous to break the law when the law isn't fair. But I thought you just said laws are important. 
They are. <laughs> but they're just not always just. So is it fair that you won't let me play Roblox all day? <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> um, yeah, this goes on and on. And they're, these, my kids are brilliant at pushing the, the boundaries of the rules and helping us think through, well, why is this rule exist? in small ways and in big ways. And life is constantly encouraging us to lean into that tension. Philip and I were just having a conversation about this, right? It's just leaning into the tension of life and raising kids and these seemingly irreconcilable opposites. I think of it like the repelling ends of a magnet when you try to put two magnets together and they just won't, or when you put a battery in wrong and the remote won't work. <laughs> and you're like, why won't it work? But, we, so, but so very often what we conceive of as opposites might actually be better considered complements or mirrors. So one of the things I'm loving about reading so much Eckhart, uh, Meister Eckhart right now, is how necessary the dark is to discover the light. And poem after poem and sermon after sermon that I read of his in this little book of secrets that we keep mentioning um, and I'll just read a few lines from it. He mentions that dark to light. Oh, that's your poem. Are we there? Yep. I can't see the screen. Okay. In order to know the light, you must first face the darkness that is in you. If you want to seek the light, pay attention to the darkness. No matter how deep the darkness within you, there remains a spark there. And this light wants only this, the naked God, as God truly is. And among my favorites is, ours is the darkness that seeks the light, and God's is the light that longs for the dark. It's a simple equation, even if it isn't so simple. So welcome what comes of the dark. Greet it as another possibility where the light might shine again. I love that, the naked God as God truly is, and the simplicity of the equation of dark and light needing each other. So I love this paradox because we learn time and again that we can't know the light without the dark and vice versa. It's both and theology. And most often we're a vast range of everything in between the both and the and. And the temptation, I think, is to judge one better than the other. The light often gets deemed better than the dark. But they're both teachers and they both are revealers, if you will. And this complementary nature, the existence of one, implies the existence of the other. I think as humans, in the book um, that, we're, that I've been reading by Cyprian Smith, which is The Way of Paradox, he, he writes about humans being seekers of peak experiences, chasing that sort of spiritual experience, the high, if you will. And people do this in all kinds of ways. We chase ecstasy and we chase light, often running from grief in the dark. You mentioned gratitude journals being a way of kind of cheering us up in a moment of lowness. But sometimes in, in my gratitude list, I'm thankful for even the grief because it reveals something else. And most of our wisdom, I think, comes from how we approach the ordinary, not those peak experiences. You know, I, I mentioned William James writing about the religious experience, and those are memorable. And, and they stay with you forever. And it's not possible to live in that moment all the time. So seeking that sort of mystical and ordinary life, I think, is why this class is so aptly named. 
Um, but I was thinking about the parable of the sisters Mary and Martha. If you recall, uh, Martha chides her sister for not helping with the household chores. She says something you know, along the lines of, Mary's always meditating. Gosh, she's just always concerned with things of the spirit. And Jesus chides Martha right back and says, she's right where she needs to be. And so are you. So the moral then is that the essence of both Mary and Martha to do the ordinary mundane household chores and spiritual seeking are both necessary. So finding that balance between practice and just being. And Cyprian Smith says in The Way of Paradox that to serve the great mystery that is in existence, let me start over. To serve the great mystery that is in existence in the way the present occasion demands, that's our mystical ability. Serve the great mystery in the way that the present moment demands. Not, you know, we can't do it any differently than we're doing it. And to adopt an attitude toward the whole of life rather than look for a kind of peak experience. One of the things that's evident to me as I keep reading about paradox and then try to talk about it um, is that the second I try to put it into words, it becomes dualistic, right? Because I'm giving you something to try to hold on to, or we are giving you something to try to hold on to. I'm halfway tempted to just kind of sit here <laughs> and just point at the things that are amazing, which is every single one of us. Just take that in. And, you know, this space that we are sharing that is right here in this room and even beyond through the virtues of technology, it's those spaces in between, the breath that we're all sharing, which I know in COVID times has been sort of a scary idea, but our, our breath is mingling in this moment. It's that in-between that just feels magical, and that's where the magic happens. And I, you know, sometimes I just don't know whether to laugh or weep as to just how indisputably tiny and also magnificent we are in this great grand scheme of the universe. You know, I, was, <laughs> you have these, I have these moments of like, what if we're really, really, really tiny? Which we are, but you know, you think, well, I'm five, six, I'm taller than, <laughs> you know, the average woman, and I'm taller than my dogs, I'm still slightly taller than my children. Maybe I'm just also really, really tiny. So it's just that feeling constantly of like. Everybody's taller than Simone Biles. Oh, she is, most gymnasts are very small. So I, I don't know, but just, we're just constantly, if we really kind of consider it, we're always in the paradox, both tiny and giant, both healing and harmful, both dark and light. So even this results in different experiences that as we experience this room, as we even experience this talk, we're all here together. We're having a communal experience but each one of us is taking it in individually. That's its own paradox. We each experience this moment differently and collectively. So the mystical experience is not just an altered state of consciousness. It's not just LSD or mushrooms or ayahuasca, but it's, it's likely, or deep states of meditation. That's, those states cannot, again, be maintained, but it's being present to experience itself to what we experience every day. It's so simple, but it is, it, this 
line from Cyprian Smith landed on me so profoundly when I read it. He wrote, the mystic does not, is it there? Okay. The mystic does not believe in God, but experiences God in all things. In this way, a mystical experience is less an expansion of consciousness, which those peak moments give us, a feeling of expanded consciousness, than it is a breaking through to consciousness, our own layers of consciousness. And I love this. It's a birthing of God in the self. He has this whole, have you reread this part? This process of kind of birthing God in the self, which is so intimate and very feminine and very vulnerable to give birth to something within ourself that is already there. This poem from the way, or this passage from the way of paradox and Smith's assessment of Meister Eckhart's teaching reads, so now we really are on the perplexing knife edge of a paradox. We are being called to an experience which is not an experience, a union with God which is perceptible yet utterly ineffable, ecstatic but not a trip, extraordinary and totally normal. Furthermore, it is both serious and funny. Paradox transcends time, but it occurs in time. It transcends creatures, yet creatures are part of it. It is, it is an experience of God, but entirely in the world. So embracing paradox, what Jungians might call the integration of opposites, what we are also calling the way of mysticism, what we're teaching about, is ultimately a journey toward wholeness. And this cannot be done without embracing the shadow. So maybe it's best for me to say no more at this point, but just to sort of ponder and observe what is being birthed in us right now. We're done. Just kidding. <laughs> I was just being silent. Yeah. You know, Frederick Buechner says that, that um, he thinks that the perfect Easter sermon would be for the minister to get up in the pulpit on Easter Sunday. The place is packed. That's, you know, Easter is a big day. And that the minister would say nothing. And then turn and point to the cross. And then turn back and start to smile. And then to giggle. And then to laugh. And then to guffaw. And then to sit down. Mm -hmm. You know John Cage's Symphony of Silence? Are yeah. you familiar with that? Yeah. He was an avant-garde, postmodern pianist. And he got up and just sat at the and piano. And two weeks ago I read a, about a man who, who bought a, a statue made out of space. I own a lot of statues made out of space. <laughs> I mean, some of that. I tell you the great mystery. You know the great mystery? I'll tell you a mystery. You know the mystery? Real mystery. Why is it that more than half the time when you try to plug in a USB cable, it's wrong? <laughs> it should just be 50-50, right? But it's not. It's got to turn it the other way. <laughs> My mind works in strange ways. <laughs> so you're about to get another strangeness. So I, I, I hope you gained something truly valuable out of this time today that you've chosen to invest here. Uh, though none of you is special, sorry, 
Nobody is. You are precious. And your time is precious. And so I hope you gain something. However, if you came here to get something, you're probably not going to get it. We do have needs. We have profound needs, uh, both individually and collectively. We have a need for a more just and equitable society. And we have the need to know more deeply and truly who we truly are. Now, these two needs that you see are interconnected. And they cannot, they must not be separated. One is social and practical, and the other is mystical. And we cannot hope to understand and change the social structures that we both build and inhabit until we understand the hidden depths of our own selves. Now, I am assuming that there is a lot left for you to do in this arena because I feel like there's a lot left for me to do. So here's a paradox for you to chew on. I would be lost and in the dark without the light that the teachings of Jesus and his best interpreters shed on my life. The light I find in truths like the incarnation, grace, sacrament, forgiveness, blessing, and especially that paradoxical death that we mention a lot, dark and light, death and resurrection. That is so life-saving and so life-nurturing. But when Christians claim that their light is the only light, and that anyone who does not share their understanding of it is doomed to eternal damnation, things get very dark for me. Mm. I want to run kicking and screaming into the so-called secular world, which I believe is better named the wide, wide, wild world of, of God, where mm. I can recover my God-given mind, because you can go crazy in the church. <laughs> Parker Palmer, a popular Quaker Christian spiritual director, says that, quote, next to a church profaned by the exclusion of others. And just look at history, how much the church has done that. Mm -hmm. Next to a church profaned by the exclusion of others, a city of true diversity is a cathedral. Now, I have never been able to understand how a person can believe in the grace and love of God and still believe that grace and love are available only to folks who sign up for their particular understanding of how God works in their lives, their particular understanding. Anne Lamott has a good response for such folks when they insist that her brand of Christianity is a one-way ticket to hell. She thanks them for sharing, you know, thanks for sharing. <laughs> and then she says, you know the difference between God and you? God doesn't think he's you. 
So the kind of teachings that we want to offer on this path of contradiction and paradox are intended to be mystery mystical teachings and to contribute to each one of us becoming mystics. In a talk I heard Richard Rohr give once, he said something like this. It's not a direct quote, but something like it. He said, suppose a superstar of knowledge moves into your house. This person has three PhDs and sits at your dinner table every evening, dispersing information and knowledge about everything imaginable. He can give you the ultimate answer to any question you ask. He doesn't lead you through his thinking process. He doesn't even involve you in it. He simply states the conclusions that he's reached. Now, you might find what he offers interesting and even helpful, but the way he relates to you does not set you free, does not empower you, does not make you feel good about yourself. His wisdom doesn't liberate you doesn't invite you into a process of growth. As a matter of fact, it makes you feel inferior, dependent. This, says Rohr, is exactly the way we have treated Jesus. We have treated him like a person with three PhDs coming to tell us the conclusions. And that's not what we need. What we need and want is to experience the process of growing in freedom and love. Not to know about it, but to experience that process. We want to be involved in the ongoing process of becoming integrated centers of freedom and love. And the dangers of religion is that they fall into the temptation of trying to get it right instead of trying to get it together. You know, I'm not kidding when I say this. Jesus of Nazareth could not pass the requirements to become an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. The biblical story is full of characters whose lives are real and who make real mistakes, and they work through those mistakes. Now, they would say they do it by the grace of God or with the help of God. And as we go on and, and share with you our understandings um, of Meister Eckhart's understanding of God, then you'll understand how these mystics can say that because they see God in everything. Mm. Just keep in mind that both Moses and Paul were known murderers. And we're on that same path of forgiveness and wholeness. So um, next week, maybe two, I'm not sure. <laughs> we're feeling our way along. We're going to talk about two, uh, and we're doing this because this material is not in the Gospel of John, but it's so important to talk about. We're going to talk, talk about two, uh, the parables of Jesus. Um, one about the treasure hidden in a field and one about the pearl of great price. So last week we told, uh, we we're calling this time today the beyond within, and we'll continue that that's within, what, what we seek for. It's, it's like when Carl Jung was here in Houston once, that's why we have a Jung Center here, because mm. he, he came here. He was interviewed and, uh, on a radio program, and somebody asked him if he believed in God, and he said, no. I know. That's what we're shooting for. Mm -hmm. Not, to, not a belief, but a knowledge, a, a wisdom, 
uh, an experience. So we're going to spend um, maybe two weeks talking about those two parables. They're in Luke and um, encourage you to read them in a good translation. Peterson would be good. And then we're going to spend several weeks uh, talking about probably the best-known parable of Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son, um, to, to dig really uh, deep in that. Now, <clears throat> two of the mystics who have had a tremendous impact on my own spiritual development and understanding are Thich Nhat Hanh and Thomas Merton. Mm. Thich Nhat Hanh's concept of interbeing, and I don't know how much you all watched when we were in the lockdown, but Holly, when we got into talking about the teachings of Buddhism, got, got this word interbeing in front of us every week, interbeing. Interbeing means... Bill kept trying to correct the spelling. Huh? Well, <laughs> because my spell cracker didn't spell He kept trying to separate like it. it into yeah. two words. <laughs> Um, yeah. Interbeing is that great experience where Thich Nhat Hanh uh, says that you can see the world in a piece of paper. Mm. And see the entire world in a piece of paper. You get that? You know that experience? And um, I have, I'm not going to do it today. I can do it sometime. I don't have this memorized, but. His prayer poem, Call Me By My True Names, never fails to move people when mm -hmm. I read it in here. Thomas Burton, the Trappist monk with a gigantic yeah. intellect, who, by the way, also had an affair with his nurse that he met in the hospital in Louisville when he was there for an illness. A lot of people don't like to hear about that, but he's human just like we are. Mm -hmm. He describes his own mystical experience as taking place on the streets of Louisville, Kentucky, when he'd gone in town for medical treatment. And this is what he wrote. I'm going to read two passages by Merton today, so this is one of them. Mm -hmm. In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine, and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. So in his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, <clears throat> if you don't have that book, you get this book, you got this book. I think three of the most beautiful paragraphs in the English language are in this book, mm. and I want to read them to you. Now, you've got to forgive Merton's sexist language. He didn't know any better. You asked that of the women in the room. Hmm? You asked that of the women in the room. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, he, uh, <laughs> Put she, he in wherever you just hear he. <laughs> Put we. <laughs> I, I know that my attempt, first attempt to read Seven Story Mountain, which is a wonderful book, it just, I, it just got so bogged down in the sexist language anyway. So I'll try to correct it while I read it. You think I should do that? Just try let it, it. Stand. See if you can. Huh? Oh, 
We're getting, we're no, getting called right. for purism. I'm going to read it like a truth. <laughs> what is serious to men is often very trivial in the sight of God. What in God might appear to us as play is perhaps what he himself takes most seriously. At any rate, the Lord plays and diverts himself in the garden of his creation. And if we could let go of our own obsession with what we think is the meaning of it all, we might be able to hear his call and follow him in his mysterious cosmic dance. We do not have to go very far to catch echoes of that game and of that dancing when we are alone on a starlit night, when by chance we see the migrating birds in autumn descending on a grove of junipers to rest and eat, when we see children in a moment when they are really children, when we know love in our own hearts, or when, like the Japanese poet Basho, we hear the, an old frog land in a quiet pond with a solitary splash. At such times, the awakening, the turning inside out of all values, the newness, the emptiness, and the purity of vision that makes themselves evident provide a glimpse of the cosmic dance. For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. And the more we persist in misunderstanding the phenomena of life, the more we analyze them out into strange finalities and complex purposes of our own, the more we involve ourselves in sadness, absurdity, and despair. But it does not matter much. Because no despair of ours can alter the reality of things or, the, or stain the joy of the cosmic dance, which is always there. Indeed, we are in the midst of it, and it is in the midst of us. For it beats in our very blood whether we want it to or not. Yet the fact remains that we are invited to forget ourselves on purpose, cast our often solemnity, our awful solemnity to the winds, and join in the general dance. Mm. So this can happen to us on a starry night, which is hard to see in Houston, <laughs> when we see a flock of birds descending when we see children really being children, when we know love in our hearts, when we hear the splash of a frog in a pond, then we know, and it may only be for a fleeting instant, that nothing is missing. This is the way of paradox. This is the way of contradiction. And we want to teach it in an effort to get us out of our heads and into the symbolic, metaphorical, non-literal parabolic, mystical world of what is really real. As you read that, um, this is not in my notes, but I was just taken to a little moment when we just went on a road trip. We stopped at my sister's farm, which is near Nashville, and um, she had jars laid out for the boys because their field is like a light with lightning bugs. You know, that time of night when they're all dancing around. Every now and then they get a little bit higher than your head, but they mostly f float pretty close to the, to the ground. And um, the boys were catching, just scooping up. They could just go like this and scoop up a whole jar of fireflies, which I used to do when I was little, when I would visit my grandparents in North Carolina, just scoop up jars of fireflies and we'd watch them for a time. You know, you, 
you have this like encapsulated light. And my oldest son said, what if, what if this is how they invented lanterns? By putting fireflies in a jar. First, they would have had to invent the jar, but, um, <laughs> but just, you know, and then he said, but I think I'll let it go. They deserve to be like the stars. And, and in that moment, I was like a child, and I was the mother, and I was watching them capture the fireflies and just being in awe of it. It was, it was a very normal, ordinary, mystical moment of just watching children be children. Well, I didn't, well, hold on. <laughs> you know, and also being taken right back to my own child self. Mm -hmm. And, I, and it, I was delighted and they were delighted. And that was just a moment of mysticism in the ordinary world. You know, and I just think, it actually, so we have a telescope, and you can see stars in Houston. <laughs> you can see so much more through a telescope than you can with your naked eye. Like, it, it's so amazing what, what is there, what is there for us to see and that we can't see when we're just kind of running along doing life in a busy kind of blinders way. But I think there's always something there for us to see, to sort of be in awe of to be in wonder about. But I wanted to sort of go through, a, I think, what a few guiding principles are that are helping to frame the work that we're doing. Some of these I'm writing probably influenced from Bill over the last 20 some odd years. But if we say here that the rule of the universe is that everything belongs, then I equate God in many ways with the kind of idea of the universe, in many ways, it makes sense to me to think of God like negative space or dark matter, the thing that keeps us from flying apart. <laughs> that we are as much in God as God is in us, as much in the universe as the universe is in us. Then, and I don't mean that in a new agey way, like, let's just ask the universe. I just mean it's just reality. It's just presence. It's just that, that material and non-material that keeps us from flying apart. But here are the things to sort of keep in mind. There is, we're not teaching from a three-tiered universe here. We're teaching from the idea of an expansive, multi-dimensional universe in which we are all a part. Second principle is there's not an evacuation plan. Jesus is not our evacuation plan handing out lifeboats and rafts and inner tubes so that we don't drown. There's no place to go or to get to only right here. And the third is the way that Jesus talked about, the way that Jesus taught is not about belief or doctrine. One of the things that I have learned over the years that I love about Jewish, Jewish teachings is that they are taught to question, taught to just follow the thread all the way down. That's what you were saying, that we take Jesus at this level that Jesus' word is Jesus' word instead of going, what does that mean, and what does that mean, and what does that mean? So I think we're invited here to not have to believe in something or the right thing or the right doctrine, but to be in the experience. So we're not separating regular life and spiritual life, like this is your hour of spiritual life that you get. <laughs> but how can we take the spiritual life and infuse it into the regular life? And one of the other things that Cyprian Smith says is that this is more of an attitude than it is a separate practice. 
our practice helps us develop the attitude toward everything else. The fourth thing is that the way of mysticism, I said this already, is not an expanding of consciousness. Like, um, we can't always be in that moment. So the expansion of con consciousness I am equating with a temporary experience that might be induced by certain deep meditative states, mind-altering drugs, or otherwise ecstatic experiences. Again, we can't always be in that. But it's about the breaking through of consciousness, which is in itself expansive. So there's the paradox. In other words, it's already in you. And number five, appropriate for today, God does not have a nationality not even necessarily a being, but that which is between, within, or among us. To love and to hold Christianity accountable, I think, and this is like a lifelong thing for me, and I may be assuming that some of the rest of you, to hold Christianity accountable is to usher it forth through that message of wholeness and belonging and inclusion, not exclusion, God is more American than anything else, or et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned earlier that... Um, John Shelby Spong wrote that Christianity, was it John Shelby Spong who said Christianity needs to be rescued from religion? Jesus needs Jesus. to be rescued from Christianity. Well, right, that's what I was going to say. We <laughs> add on to that. Jesus needs to be rescued from Christianity, and specifically, I would say, from an American version of Christianity, which is very nationalistic, very individualistic. My personal relationship with Jesus, my salvation. So ironic to mention this today, but it, it must be said. Christianity is not an individualistic religion. It's about collective liberation. So if we think that Jesus is more American than anything, and we have Americanized Jesus, more white than not, which he's not, and likes, dare I say it, the Astros more than any other team in the world. That's going too far. I know, okay. <laughs> I will send that one from the... <laughs> If we think that those things are true about God, about Jesus, then it is not God. If we think that we can fit God into a box, it is not God. When I was a camper um, in summer camps as a small child, so small, but as a child, we sang this song that said, if I had a little blue box, I'd put my Jesus in. <laughs> if I had a little red box, I'd put my, the Satan in. And so, what, like, ugh, we can't fit Jesus into a box, right? We really just need to free Jesus from the box and free ourselves in the process from that box. My favorite reading this week from the Book of Secrets, the Meister Eckhart um, meditation and book of poems is, is this one. Who can understand this? Who can understand this, that God is creating the world not out there, but in the innermost part of the soul, time nor the light of any image? If you imagine this, you will know, if only in a small way, that even in the darkness, you are no more separate from the world than God is. And if you glimpse this, even if for a moment, you will know that God is becoming human again and again, even now, even in you. So, um, <clears throat> Thomas Merton died in 1968. 
He was attending a monastic conference in a province near Bangkok, Thailand, and he was found after giving a presentation in his room, um, and the assumption at the time was that he'd been electrocuted. I found out later that there's some controversy about his death, but um, mm. it's, that's the story that was put out. Thomas Merton converted to Roman Catholicism in 1937. After he had read a lot about Eastern religions, he was really caught up in Eastern religions. He studied Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Jainism, and Sufism, in addition to his academic and monastic studies. And um, he was a novice master for a long time at Gethsemane uh, Monastery. And he would give these talks in the chapter house there, and they are recorded. And you can buy them. And I tell you that he, um, the production value is not great. Um, Thomas Merton was not a public speaker. Um, he sounded, uh, Sherry gave me a huge collection of his talks on CDs, and he gave the series of talks on Sufism. And when I first listened to him, I said, this can't be Thomas Merton. This guy sounds like somebody gave a pipe fitter a manuscript and said, try to read this. <laughs> and and, and it, he got up at the chapter meeting and said, uh, and, and if you think about this, this guy is a genius. He's going to talk to the Roman Catholics about Sufism. And so he gets up in the, in the chapter house and he says, well, I shouldn't be talking about this. You all probably shouldn't be listening to it any. But I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm on the edge of my seat. What's he going to say? <laughs> uh, the guy's brilliant. In um, 1966, he and Thich Nhat Hanh met to talk about their lives and teachings. Mm. There's a book about uh, the, the two of them, which I confess I have not read, but I love both these guys. Mm. And because Thomas Merton was the novice master in this monastery in Gethsemane, he was very interested in the spiritual formation that Thich Nhat Hanh got the Buddhist monks into, right? So Merton asked Thich Nhat Hanh, what do you teach the young monks about meditation? And Thich Nhat Hanh said, we don't teach meditation to the young monks. They are not ready for it until they stop slamming doors. <laughs> we live in a door-slamming culture. People going back and forth at each other. Um, I'm not on Facebook, but I understand it can be an unpleasant experience. You read the papers, and you listen to TV, and you know, boy, it's Fox versus MSNBC, and goes back and forth. There seems to be so much that wants to grab our attention, and paradoxically, there's so much that is worthy of grabbing our attention. I mean, the debate going on about critical race theory is an important thing. 
uh, get involved in. The, the ongoing conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the rise of anti-Semitism, the Tulsa race massacre, which I confess I had not heard of until just recently. The move toward limiting voting rights across the country. Yeah. The insane amount of gun violence that is in this country. Issues around the mounting climate crisis. The continuing confusion of living in a society where there are so many people who are unable to separate conspiracy theories and outright lies from the truth. The philosopher Voltaire wrote, people who believe in absurdities will eventually commit atrocities. We don't teach meditation to the young monks. They're not ready for it until they stop slamming doors. The place where the door slamming stops is here. Right now. And knowing this, practicing this, can put us in the calm eye of the storm of the tempests that rage around us. So I want to leave today, leave you with an eight-word meditation practice. These words are familiar to you. They come from a psalm. <laughs> Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know be still be <laughs> no matter where you go this week no matter what happens remember this you carry precious cargo so watch your step happy 4th of July and we will see you here next week <laughs>